Greetings and salutations, friends, and welcome back to the arcade. We are your video game podcast here with you fourth week of Sunday, December 13th of the year 2020. How's it going, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages? I am Mike the Legend, who's glad to be back with you, finally back with you once again as we were away last week and we we're a little few days away from our normal release cycle, but that's okay. We are back here with you, and that is all that matters in these crazy, topsy, turbulent times. Yes, and this week I am Dennis, the man who is excited to eventually make a penis so big it literally cannot be contained by pants, but is not looking forward to 100 gigabytes of updates when he does. <laughs> yes, in case you have been living under a rock, I'm referring to Cyberpunk 2077. Ah. Thank you for clarifying. Um, yes, I, I mean, not- there's any kind of medium that you could make this, make that penis out of, but, uh, uh, the, the most pertinent example is in Cyberpunk 2077, which actually came out. Yes, absolutely. Thankfully. <laughs> Son of a gun. Well, they said it couldn't be done. They said it wouldn't be done, but it was done. Yes, it's a penis so big it couldn't be contained by pants. But we later found out it, that's actually a glitch on the part of the character creation software because, yeah, I guess there's bounds that genitalia can fall under that clothes also can't fall under, apparently. So I guess they have to... It's, it's part of the large stream of huge patches that have to keep coming out, I guess, in these the wake of these, of the release of the game for the first couple of weeks. And it's not just uh, an exclusive, uh, uh, I guess, pr- uh, problem or concept to Cyberpunk 2077. Any big game will have several huge subsequent updates uh, and also day zero patches as well uh, that follow yep. in the wake of its release. Uh, every yep. title has it. Yeah, so this is not... Yeah, like I said, it shouldn't be something that's um, surprising to anyone at this point. It just, it's kind of funny, you know, the glitches when they do come out. Uh, one of the other ones I heard about was that, uh, I guess because Keanu Reeves is a character in the game, um, people were also reporting, unless it was like doctored images or something, but people were reporting that the the image textures for Keanu Reeves' face sometimes weren't loading correctly, so he would just look super weird and pixely. <laughs> Oh, I've heard there's been some graphical issues and uh, glitches and uh, some snafus with the uh, the game as well. Just yeah. overall, beyond just the Keanu Reeves character of, uh, I believe, Johnny Silverarm or Johnny Silverhand. Yeah. So it's this is a kind of interesting um, thing going on, I guess, right now with this game. On that note, uh, I've seen the gaming community make cries of, uh, well, this game was rushed. It, it came out too fast. But it's the, this is the same community that complains when games get delayed too long, right? It sure is. Um, so, how, so, how could they say it was rushed? It's been worked on for several years already. Yeah, but I, I guess the, you know, because they're saying like, well, a game that wasn't rushed clearly would have, you know, no issues, right? I mean, you could try and make that argument. You would be wrong. Pretty much every game is going to have some sort of flaw. Yeah. 
Oh, I mean, yeah, we've talked about this as well. Like even classic games, like going back to like, you know, the Atari and NES days and stuff, they're not without their glitches and their weird quirks. You know, like oftentimes there will be, you know, easy reproduction steps towards some of these quirks and flaws, which actually sometimes will give you positive beneficial effects. Like, you know, there, there's like wall clipping glitches that speedrunners will often use for games like Mario 64 to be able to skip entire areas of the game and do sequence breaking things. So like if the game was actually patched correctly, those wouldn't happen anymore and you wouldn't be able to have that as an avenue. But because it's a legitimate part of a game that's a closed source that's no longer privy to updates or is was never privy to updates because it was, you know, from a time before updates. Yeah, you know, it's it's just a thing, I guess. And the flaws and the problems and errors in those old games are just uh, things that you eventually have to accept and in some cases become part of the charm of that title. Uh but, of course, in the modern times, there's no need to accept flaws when you can simply release post-game up or post-release updates. Yeah. Also, in defense of updates, like, like don't get me wrong, I'm not against updates. Like, you know, it's annoying to have to download, like, huge, like, 50-plus gigabyte downloads. Like, even yesterday when I was playing a an online game with one of my siblings, it was Elder Scrolls Online. I guess we hadn't loaded it up in a while, and... You know, there was actually like a 47 gigabyte update before we were able to play, which kind of sucks. It's kind of annoying if you, if you eke out some time to play a game and then you're like, oh crap, like, so now pretty much half an hour of that time is gone with updates. Yeah, it's annoying. But for a giant game like a cyberpunk or something like that, if it is something potentially game breaking, no one wants to have to put up with a game breaking thing for like, the entirety of an 80-plus-hour experience, right? I know you shouldn't, and uh, you know a user, a gamer, shouldn't be expected to either. Um, you know, those are the things that should be taken care of immediately, and uh, hell should be even taken care of before the game releases. Yeah, but sometimes it's a matter of scale as well, like where you have an in-house quality assurance team there's only so many people on your team and they're only going to be able to play in the, they're only going to play the game in certain ways, right? Like you can never think of the myriad of ways that users are going to break stuff. No, that's true. I mean, they're going to go through the uh, probably most common uh, using experiences to see if there's any flaws, snafus, problems that are created in those normal pathways of play. Um, and ultimately you're there's still going to be very, very specific circumstances where a flaw is detected, but, you know, how much time do you have to put into the quality assurance testing to go through every possible uh, uh, criteria of, of glitch detection? And as it is, uh, I'm sure the QA team at CD Projekt Red, who've been working on Cyberpunk 2077, they've, I'm sure, been testing it for years along the line, too. Yeah, but all I'm saying, too, is that um, you are going to get to a point as a QA development team where you're going to be facing the limitations of how your QA team's brains work. And, you know, like, and I don't mean that as a knock against anyone's, you know, abilities, but it 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 is not an ability thing at that point. It's literally like my play style is going to be slightly different from your play style, 
right? Like the way I might approach a problem is going to be maybe it's very possible that if they have a team of like 40 people, the way I play through a game isn't going to match any of them. So it like, it literally becomes a matter of like scale and complexity at that point. So I totally get it where, you know, they might be expecting you to walk generally up this area and then take a right generally here and then maybe talk to this person and maybe get distracted by these two side quests. They're not going to expect you to like jump in the water and like go exploring totally way off course right away, maybe. Right. That's true. Uh, and in some cases of, uh, of glitches and uh, problems that come up and whatnot, um, I, I, I wonder if there's the potential that it's maybe also somewhat hardware dependent on uh, uh, maybe what a person has. I'm specifically thinking of, say, PC, where there's great variety amongst the, uh, I guess, the hardware setups that could exist. Yeah, maybe. Or at the very least, maybe if you over-optimize for the lowest possible one, like in the case of this game, the PlayStation 4 or like the... I guess the Xbox One. Uh, the yeah, the One X. Yeah, the One X. I, I'm never going to remember what Xbox is what, so bear with me. <laughs> but yeah, in this case, when you're optimizing for those lowest possible versions, maybe there's going to be things that happen where things load too fast, and you know, problems happen. Like as we saw, I think it was actually even with The Witcher Three when. I think it might actually be a bug that still exists, but someone showed on some crazy setup where they had like some Threadripper P- CPU or something and like a ton of RAM and some crazy high quality video card. The game loaded so fast that some things were missing textures because the texture, like the, the game code wasn't actually able to keep up with the hardware. So like, so there was like a blip where you're like, you saw things in a way that like, you know, you weren't supposed to for a second, like almost like a wireframe type thing where it's like, whoa. <laughs> so like there's, there's always unexplained, like always unanticipated things that happen. So I, I totally get the, the, the patches. It just sucks is all. I'm just kind of idly complaining about them having to be a thing. I, and uh, that's understandable. I, uh, I, don't know too many people out there that actually enjoy the task of uh, and the waiting to download these huge patches for games. Um, I mean, look, Call of Duty, uh, the most recent one, has had some very huge patches as well. It is just a byproduct of the current modern gaming age, and the only way to uh, to avoid it is just go back and play the old machines with the old uh, the old cartridges. Yes, or just you know just accept change and kind of live with the way the world is now. That also might make your life in general, maybe easier. I don't know. Just, I mean, there's, that, there's that potential too, but uh, cyberpunk 2077 is out now uh, getting some rave reviews uh, despite its blood bugs and glitches uh, and uh, <laughs> um, genitalia based glitches as well. Um, yes. Although that genital creator on your creator character is, I mean, that's going to get a lot of use and a lot of workout from a lot of people. Yeah. Admittedly, I haven't really seen any in-depth videos on how it works yet because, you know, obviously all the videos I was seeing, people kind of gave um, 
warnings that they were going to be skipping over that because obviously they didn't want to get their accounts banned by YouTube for putting up what is effectively like, you know, full frontal nudity and or porn because, you know, it's against the terms of service of the YouTube community. But what I find also kind of funny though, just as a one last thing to talk about here regarding cyberpunk this week is I saw an in-depth video that someone made of the character creator that was 22 minutes long and they didn't get into the genital part. So 22 minutes worth of customizations, like just to talk about the different things you can do. Even so without was, getting into the genitals. Yes, exactly. Good Lord. How in depth is this thing? Yeah, that's, that's the question, right? So, <laughs> so very much like, um, I mean, I thought the fallout Four character generation was in depth because you know, we were able to see some of the creative, you know, sculpting work that sculpting work that some people put together with that. Like, you know, the instances where we saw like Sylvester Stallone as like the character that they made and things like that. But I'm, I'm genuinely curious to see what people are going to end up coming up with using this character creation in uh, cyberpunk 2077. Oh, that's, uh, we're certainly going to see some very talented and very creative people do some really impressive things. And on the flip side, we're going to see some really creative, really talented people do some really stupid things too. Yes. Those are the ones I'm mostly looking forward to. <laughs> see, uh, on the one hand, I mean, there's a segment of the gaming population out there that will enjoy and appreciate those very in-depth creative character customization menus and options. I'm of the camp when it comes to those where I'm I'm paralyzed by all the options. Like I, I've had this problem even going back into the, you know, create a character days of, of, of a wrestling game or a sports game or whatnot, you know, select your attributes and whatnot. I get paralyzed. There's too many options. I, I can't deal. Yeah. It's like, let me, let me just play. I, I don't want to go through this. It's too much to think about. I'm overwhelmed. I, I, I can't, I just can't deal right now to get me into the game. Uh, actually, uh, if I may just throw in one last, uh, Cyberpunk 2077 related story, actually a bit of good news. Uh, we have spoken in the weeks leading up to the release of Cyberpunk 2077 about how, well, the game was, its release date was delayed and pushed back and the devs were under crunch, even though CD Projekt Red said they were going to be doing their best to avoid crunch. They later admitted that they would have their staff working under dev crunch, which is absolutely shitty, shitty conditions. But a report I saw from Bloomberg, a business news outlet this earlier this week that said uh, the management and executives of uh, CD Projekt Red kind of uh, were taking the brunt of uh, the burden for the uh, dev crunch and the, uh, I guess, delay in the game's release and whatnot. And so they told essentially told all their staff that they would be receiving their full bonuses uh, that they would be entitled to, uh, which sounds good. And you might think, okay, is that what they were doing before? No, apparently uh, the setup for Cyberpunk 2077 and its release was that the staff bonuses and bonus pay would be uh, somewhat tied and conditional to the performance and critical review and critical reception of the game. Hmm. 
But uh, the report from Bloomberg I saw said that, no, in fact, the dev staff and uh, team that worked on Cyberpunk will be getting their full pay regardless of critical reception, their full bonus pay, uh, basically as a thank you to the staff for suffering under DevCrunch and still cranking out the title and working on the immediately necessary patches and updates to the to the game too. Well, that's that's good. So, at least uh, CD Project Red uh, trying to save face and do some good in the uh, in light of the forced dev crunch that they put their team under. Yeah. So good on them. I don't know too many other studios that have done that. Uh, if you out there have heard of that, uh, let us know. We want to share the good stories out there because there's not nearly enough of them these days. Uh, email us info at the arcade show.com or hit us up through social media. We're on Twitter at the arcade show and on Facebook, facebook.com slash the arcade show. Well, now that we've spent a good almost 20 minutes talking about cyberpunk, considering neither of us have actually played the game yet. <laughs> Um, let's move on with the rest of our program, which leads us to our one ludicrous lead off this week. And in light of Disney's recent investor day presentation, virtual presentation, where they announced a slew of new content coming to the Disney plus platform from the star Wars branch, from the Marvel branch, a whole bunch of national geographic specials and new series coming a bunch of Pixar content, like just an absolute gluttony of content that Disney announced during that Investor Day presentation, it's easy to overlook one of the, I dare say, more major and more important uh, entertainment announcements that was made a couple of weeks ago. We haven't had a chance to talk about it previously, but we'll get to it now because it, of course, has been lost in those weeks and completely overshadowed by everything announced, which we feel is completely wrong and incorrect, that there is a classic, another classic Disney afternoon cartoon that is being brought back, uh, and it bears talking about. Absolutely. So one that uh, both Mike the Legend and I uh, kind of grew up watching when we were younger children uh, was one called DuckTales. You might have heard of it. Maybe the song's in your head now if you're of a certain age. And if not, well, hopefully that they, they at least keep elements of the song the same when we, uh, when the, when the new generation gets to watch, uh, that. However, um, that's not the one I'm talking about because I, I, I read a couple of other characters and uh, I, my brain went to the wrong place. But DuckTales basically had, you know, was sort of like a launching off point for a couple of other different series and had characters from, you know, basically, it ended up lending characters from its series to a couple of other shows, but most notably there was one big show where the most, the majority of the characters ended up going like Launchpad and um, Gosling duck and uh, a couple of others. And that one was Darkwing duck. And that friends and listeners alike is the show that is being brought back by Disney for the Disney Plus service uh, in wake of the uh, success that the recent DuckTales remake and redo has had over its, I believe, three seasons? I think, yes, I believe three seasons, and it's ending after the third season, but uh, it has been used to kind of bring back some of those old classic Disney afternoon characters, uh, such as... Uh, Huey, Dewey, and Louie, but also Launchpad has been featured on there, uh, as has Goofy, um, from Goof Troop, 
And also, they did a, one or two special episodes to reintroduce Dark, the character of Darkwing Duck, and that is being used to then relaunch a new generation of Darkwing Duck cartoon and episodes for people. It is still in very early development, but it is being overseen by Disney, but also being produced by Seth Rogen, his longtime collaborator Evan Goldberg, as well as James Weaver and Alex McAtee. They are all attached to produce this new series, and it's being done through Seth Rogen's Point Grey production house. So kind of wild that Seth Rogen is working on a Darkwing Duck cartoon. Kind of wild, but also not totally surprising. Seth Rogen is a man of our age, and it... Which is wild to think about. If you look at the man, he looks like he's much older. Yes. I guess that's sort of like maybe a side effect of, you know, like we joke and say that, you know, it would be, you know, fun being a movie star and all this other stuff, but there are unknown and unfathomable stresses that go with that. And sometimes people might just kind of, uh, just not deal with it very well. And I, I think it's possible that he might be in that camp, but he's done a lot as a person. Like he's like, we know him as, you know, Seth Rogen, the guy with the weird laugh and, you know, kind of mostly part of stoner comedies and stuff, but he's written a lot of stuff. He's also directed a lot of stuff that he's not in. And he like his production house has done a lot of stuff. Like, so it, it's, I get the impression, you know, as someone kind of in and around our age that is in a position that he's in, when something like this comes along, he's probably like, oh yeah, I loved Darkwing Duck when I was a kid. Like, yeah, like, yeah, sure, let's, let's do it, I would imagine. Because I think, this might be a controversial thing to say, but I think Darkwing Duck had the most comedic potential out of all of the Disney cartoons for like, I think broader comedic appeal. Because, it, you know, you could basically parody a, a wider array of things with, you know, a hero, like a superhero slash alter ego type framework, right? That's true. And also, too, uh, uh, the contrast between the superhero life and the, the just regular pedestrian life of uh, of Drake Mallard, who was uh, the, the normal homebody persona of Darkwing Duck, who was just a single dad raising his adopted daughter of Goslin Mallard, who would just get into hijinks and she was, you know, just a rambunctious handful. Uh, and then playing that against the, you know, very brave, very daring, get his ass kicked hero in Darkwing Duck. Yeah. But also, too, the original... uh uh, form of Darkwing Duck, I always interpreted it as a parody of Batman, like Batman, Bruce Wayne, uh, but also maybe with elements of like uh, the old comic character, the old pulp comic character of the Shadow. Uh, if you look at the design of the Shadow, uh, God, character that I think dates back to the 30s and 40s, um, he had the, the very wide brim uh, hat and wore a cape that he would kind of use to cover his face with, which is kind of, which are two hallmarks of Darkwing Duck. Yeah, I can, I definitely can see that as being a thing. Now, also, I just enjoyed the, the aesthetic of, uh, of Darkwing Duck a bit more than, say, DuckTales, um, given that it was 
set in St. Canard, but it was really just a parody of Gotham. Uh, you know, some 19, pseudo 1930s, um, uh, you know, pseudo noir style aesthetic, uh, instead of just being the kind of bright and over the topness, uh, cartoon that DuckTales had too. Yeah. So Darkwing Duck also had a, just a more colorful cast of enemies too in its rogues gallery. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, its rogues gallery felt more like a traditional rogues gallery, like almost to the point of, well, just to the point of parody in and of itself, like very much like the sixties Batman, like it was more in line with that type of thing. Whereas, you know, DuckTales had a rogues gallery, but it was more like weird recurring characters that weren't like a, weren't as explicitly like, I mean, at times they were explicitly like kind of like the bad guy, but within the framework of DuckTales, they weren't really crime fighters. So as the bad guys were just more or less just obstacles in the way of, you know, the characters doing whatever, whereas the rogues gallery and Duck, Darkwing Duck are actual criminals being brought to justice by an actual superhero. This is true. And uh, DuckTales was more an adventure series with hijinks along the way that uh, may intersect with the villains and uh, and then the heroes or the protagonists, Huey, Dewey, Louie, Scrooge McDuck, sometimes Donald, uh, would then have to you know, intercede and uh, interfere and whatnot. But yeah, um, more of an actual crime fighting superhero cartoon. And we're going to get that in a new form on Disney plus brought to us in no small part by Seth Rogen, which I kind of wonder if Seth Rogen is going to maybe write himself apart and do a voice for a character on the show. Yeah. I mean, I could see it happening though. Part of me just kind of thinks, he, he almost should be Launchpad, right? He could be, although I know Launchpad has uh, been brought back as a character on the new incarnation of DuckTales, and it's been, I believe the role was recast, so it was a new person doing the voice of Launchpad, but, I mean, Seth Rogen, Evan Goldberg are creative people, I'm sure they could come up with a new rogue for Seth Rogen to voice. Or maybe yeah. he wants to take over and do the voice of uh, the Liquidator. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. So, uh, despite what, all of what you may have heard of what's coming, uh, and announced by Disney the other day, all the Star Wars stuff, uh, you know, all the big movies and productions they're doing in that universe, all the Marvel stuff, whatever. No, no, this is the one to pay attention to. Darkwing Duck coming back <laughs> at some point in the future for Disney Plus. And, uh, also my takeaway after just kind of doing a quick, uh, glance of all the titles and series and movies and productions in general that were announced for Disney Plus the other day. It's too much content. <laughs> it's overwhelming. How does one watch all of this? Yeah, I mean, we were having an offline discussion about this before, but it's it's literally to the point where it's like, it's way worse than traditional network television, at least in the days of traditional network television. You know, the worst thing that might happen was two shows that you want to watch or three shows that you want to watch are all on at the same time. And then, you know, you'd have to basically like, you know, if you're lucky enough to own a VCR or something, which, you know, everyone at a point was, you could just basically set it up somewhere else and record 
that other channel while you're watching another channel, right? And then you got, at least get to watch that. But that's like three or four shows at a time. Very manageable. Like, I mean, if you're watching like eight hours of TV a day, like maybe not every single day we'll have a thing to watch. So at most you're getting a new episode per week of whatever show. So yeah, like not everyone followed like 20 shows, but now there's literally like hundreds of potential shows that you might want to watch, including all of the shows from the past that you forgot about or never got a chance to watch that. You're like, maybe I'll check that out now. (laughs) So it's like you have access to thousands of hours of stuff. And it's like, you really need to kind of like be like, I find you need to kind of be a little bit careful with your time because like, you don't want to start getting into something just to find out that it sucks halfway through, right? That's true. They don't waste your time. Yeah. No, it's, <laughs> uh, I mean, on the one hand, it's great that there's so much, you know, good quality content and, and, uh, productions, uh, you know, happening these days. But at the same time, it's overwhelming as a viewer. Like, I, yeah, it, it, I mean, Disney Plus. I mean, just to to look on that and all the stuff that's now coming down the pipe in the future, all the stuff there that is there currently, which is a lot of old stuff. I mean, you could go and re- rewatch the entire old X Men cartoon. You could go yeah. and rewatch all of the Simpsons seasons, <laughs> like, and just yep. never touch any new content that gets produced. <laughs> So it's it's a little overwhelming. Uh, perhaps this is a, a theme you're uh, picking up on me laying down through the course of the show already in the first half hour of this recording. I get overwhelmed kind of easily. <laughs> yep. There's too much out there. There's too much, and uh, I, I, I prefer to stick to the old stuff that I know. You know, just like the TLC song Waterfalls. Stick to the rivers and lakes that you're used to. That's what I do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> To, to use another dated reference. <laughs> um, yeah, but... Um, speaking of old things... Speaking of old things that would have probably been around the vintage of that song, Waterfalls, uh, by TLC, the earlier internet... I mean, not the earliest of the internet, because the early internet is like, what, ARPANET and all that stuff and blah, blah, blah. I'm, I'm saying early internet in terms of, like, when it was commercially viable, when, like, you know you know, people were starting to use it like messenger services and like using emails and sending each other early, you know, memes and like, or before we would have called them memes, they were just like funny links that had funny things on them and stuff. A very common thing that, you know, happened back in those days was for people to link each other to, you know, fun flash animations or, you know, sites that had flash animations on them or flash animation repositories like, you know, like a, like a Newgrounds or like a Joe cartoon or something like that. So yeah, like flash, we've talked about flash before, but it's, if you were born maybe after nine 11, you probably have no idea what we're talking about. So Flash, the TLDR was that it was basically like the early way that you were able to get interactive content on the web in an easy fashion as a person making the content. Yes, it uh, it allowed your browser to do animations, to do interactive games and all that stuff that your browser couldn't normally do. 
And for many years, the browser couldn't do, and Flash was required to be that go-between to facilitate that sort of content to work and function in web browsers. But as uh, you may have seen, as you may have heard, as you may have had pop-ups come up on your computer and whatnot, Flash is uh, going to no longer be active. Not just it's no longer supported, it's going to be deactivated at the end of this calendar year. Which, on one hand, great, it means there's a greater adoption of uh, HTML5, a more stable, more secure uh, means of of having interactive content. But on the other hand, there's a lot of content that was generated in the early commercialized internet days that would no longer work in the HTML5 future. Yeah. So we just kind of ended up with just basically almost like a generation's worth of content lost to time. So no Homestar Runner. I mean, we see Homestar Runner on YouTube now, but it's not the same thing. Like no Salad Fingers, no, um, like I said, that those early Joe cartoon things like Hamster in a Blender or whatever, like none of that stuff. All gone. Lobster Magnet? No, nothing. Like, but uh, the Internet Archive in uh, partnership with the people who are making the what's called the Ruffle emulator, have basically announced, well, it, it started happening last month, and it's been kind of added to since then, but uh, there's currently an archive of about 1,000 Flash items for display as their creators originally intended using the Ruffle emulator on the Internet Archive website. So they've made a software library Flash collection, um, or showcases they're calling it, I guess, for like some of the, the bigger things, like, you know, the classic badger, 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 mushroom, 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 whatever, that one. And, you know, all your base and, you know, like I said, salad fingers makes an appearance there. Um, yeah, not everything that some of us who are around back then can think of is there yet, but theoretically it'll get built out in time, which is cool. Because, uh, yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's worth going back. Just if anything, having access to that stuff is sort of like, I'm going to say it's an important part of culture of like where the, like the internet is where it is now because of that, but there's not really a proper way to view that anymore. No, it's not. And, uh, if there was to be no means of, uh, these animations, these games, these whatever they were created in Flash to be viewed and interacted with in the future, that's that's stuff that is literally lost to time, which would be tremendously unfortunate. And also, I'd feel very bad and sad for the creators of that content. Now, granted, you know, may have been created 20, 25 years ago. Even so, um, to have no means whatsoever to interact with it in a, a, you know, the current modern time would be very dispiriting and, and saddening. So I'm glad for, for that human, on that human level that the Internet Archive has this going on. And, uh, I've already perused and gotten lost and again overwhelmed by looking at the collection of what's in there. Uh, but it did feel good to see, you know, Homestar Runner. Uh, it did not, I don't think it's all the Homestar uh, Runner cartoons. I don't think it was all the Strong Bad emails, but I imagine that's going to be worked on and fleshed out over time because there was a couple hundred Strong Bad emails at the very least. Oh, yeah. I mean, 
I want to say that there was probably like close to 400 at some point. Like when they like, cause it, that was from like the era around like when we had just kind of graduated from high school, I remember. And I know that like, I used to get kind of excited. Like, I think it was every Friday was a new strong bad email. And it was like a, just a fun thing to look forward to basically like watching the new strong bad email and like basically messaging all your friends like, oh, did you see all the different, uh, the different Easter eggs? Like, when you click on this on this page, like, this crazy thing happened or whatever. Like, when, when he was saying this, you're able to click on this thing and then you get to see this other thing happen. Like, we don't have that now with YouTube. Uh, certainly not. And uh, it, uh, to go back and review some of these flash animations and creations, um, is to go back and view a much more interactive time in entertainment and internet culture. Yes. Because so much of what we consume now as content on the internet, I think is almost entirely passive. Yeah, I think that's true. I, I don't know. I struggle to think of what there is out there on the internet in terms of creations posted to YouTube, TikTok, whatever else, where there's some actual uh, interactive element that you can have with it. Whereas uh, I think, you know, most of what's being created now is videos. Videos are some piece of music where you just absorb and that's it and move on to the next thing. Yeah, pretty much. So Flash, uh, as an actual product from Adobe that gets used, I mean, it's been on its way out for years already. I think, when was this announced that the uh, that December 31st, 2020 would be the end of it? They, that was announced a couple of years ago, I believe. Yeah, I mean, I don't remember the specific date, but it's definitely been looming large for quite some time. To uh, allow various websites and whatnot to wean themselves off Flash if they were still using it, browsers as well, uh, move to H- HTML5, that's fine, uh, but good on the Internet Archive uh, to have this preservation effort underway. Uh, we link to this in the notes for this week's program, thearcadeshow.com. Click it, check it out. Uh, and when you go there, just to warn you, uh, uh, the Internet Archive also doing a uh, fundraising drive similar to Wikipedia at this time of year. So the Internet Archive, if you are in a position to uh, help some uh, sites and whatnot that you use on the inter- Internet, I'd say the Internet Archive is a good place to consider supporting. If you're supporting, say, Wikipedia as well, these are useful tools for our uh, current daily Internet-based uh, existence. Yeah, I mean, just even if it's, like, silly curiosities, like, I re- I kind of, like, just rely on, not rely on, but, like, you know, I'm always looking up stuff on YouTube. Maybe I'm not always going back to the Internet Archive, but, you know, I definitely appreciate that it's there. And, yeah. So just just a thing to uh, be aware of if if this is uh, if something you are able to do to give and help out in this time of year, then certainly something to consider. But uh, moving along to speak of more current uh, modern gaming topics, uh, as you may or may not be aware, last month was the launch of not one but two brand new consoles to the consumer marketplace, the PlayStation 5 and the Xbox Series X. Uh, as well as the PlayStation 4 Digital Edition, as well as the Xbox Series S. Um, but basically, Xbox Series consoles and PlayStation 5 consoles came out, and uh, 
in the wake, in the immediate aftermath of their releases, both Microsoft and Sony released uh, missives, sent out messages and press releases that uh, claimed that they, they were the biggest launches in company history and provided exactly zero context or uh, hard and fast data to uh, to really shed any light on uh, to quantify those claims. But uh, uh, we do have some information, some surprising information on uh, console sales for the month of November. Uh, of all companies, it was Nintendo that kind of got ahead of the curve and put out a press release prior to the NPD group releasing data. And Nintendo which I'm sure will be supported with the NPD group data, claimed that the Switch and Switch Lite were the top-selling console for the month of November, selling a combined 1.35 million units. Yeah, so that's uh, that's quite the number. <laughs> I have to say, I'm surprised. I'm surprised with that million-plus number for the Nintendo Switch. Though, I mean... Here's another thing to kind of keep in in the back of your head. There have been supply issues, it seems, with the PlayStation 5. Now, whether or not they're, they're real supply issues or not, people have definitely been having a problem getting PlayStation 5s. And if those supply issues weren't there, it would be very interesting to see if Nintendo Switch would still be the best-selling console for the month of November. This is true. That is a good point you raise. Uh, I believe even initially the Xbox Series X and Series S had some supply issues, although it's the PlayStation 5 that seems to be more prolonged in its uh, supply chain issues of getting consoles to people and people being able to order them from various online retailers and whatnot. Um, though that, I mean, part of that is because of the scalping rings that have cropped up in various parts of the world. Yeah. But still, 1.35 million units for the Switch and Switch Lite in the month of November. This coming off the uh, previous month of October, where I think the Switch sold eight over 800,000 units. Yeah, if I recall correctly. Right. So, um, a crazy amount in the face of new console releases. Uh, so. Uh, impressive kudos to Nintendo and everyone being able to get a Nintendo Switch. I wonder if uh, maybe, you know, part of the motivation for people to get a Switch in the month of November, maybe that's uh, just, maybe that's their plan B. You know, they hopped online for a new console release day, looking for a new Xbox, looking for a new PlayStation 5, couldn't get it and thought, well... You know, little Billy or little Susie or whomever wants uh, a new console. Well, here, this is good enough. <laughs> yeah. But uh, even so, the Switch has uh, sold like crazy hotcakes this year and apparently has been the uh, best-selling console in the U.S. for 24 consecutive months. And uh, good God, that's that's a lot. Um we shall see how the sales compare as we go into the new year and as Sony eventually resolves its PlayStation 5 uh, supply issues. I don't know if it's still as much an issue with the Microsoft and its Series X and Series S. Yeah. It's, uh... they, they might be available and uh, just kind of there, if you want. Yeah. If you catch my drift. <laughs> Now they're there. Hey, if you want them, they're right there. You can get them. You know, you don't have to worry about the 
Sony and their supply issues of the PS5, you can get yourself a shiny new Xbox. It's right there. Yeah. In the store. <laughs> in the store. Uh, or at the very least, available for curbside pickup. Yeah, yes. Or whatever. Available for curbside delivery, whatever the case might be. They're there for, ready for their ordering. Just, I got a couple buttons. That's all you gotta do. Old Gills Xbox store. <laughs> uh, but speaking of Nintendo, uh, they were supposed to celebrate the launch and, or not launch, but the opening of their Super Nintendo World theme park earlier this year to coincide with the, uh, I believe the, the Summer Olympics in Tokyo that were set to play, take place earlier this summer. Of course, that did not happen because all the COVID's everywhere. Uh, so the, uh, opening of the Super Nintendo World Theme Park has been pushed back and actually now has a new opening date that is set for February 4th of the year 2021. And uh, it was late last month that Nintendo and its executives uh, held a press event in Tokyo at Universal Studios Japan to kind of show off what they have so far of the area. And it looks pretty goddamn impressive. I don't know if you've had a chance to uh, see any of it so far, but uh, the main press event was held inside the mock-up of Bowser's Castle, and that Bowser's Castle facade is going to house a Mario Kart ride. So all that was really shown to the press of the Mario Kart ride is the uh, kind of interior. There's going to be a huge... Uh, uh, well, I mean, there's the queue, there's a huge staircase that leads you up to a giant stone-looking facade of a Bowser statue right in the middle, and leads you, of course, into the loading area for the carts. It's four persons to a cart. It's, uh, I believe, an individual experience, but also a team experience. Um, and it's all augmented reality as well. Huh. And so you on this ride, this Mario Kart ride from what was shown, will be given what looks like a Mario plumber's cap with a uh, screen, an augmented reality visor, if you will, in front of your eyes. And you will be engaging in some sort of game gamified ride experience on this Mario Kart ride. I mean, now, that's pretty cool. What exactly it all entails? To be determined, I don't believe the ride is complete, or at least not complete enough to be shown off yet. Uh, there was no ride-throughs or anything of that nature, but uh, the area so far um, of Super Nintendo World in Japan looks very impressive and very much looks like it's ripped from the world of a Mario game, and it's going to immerse you in that. If you uh, are curious to see this, perhaps it flew under your radar, entirely understandable. We have links to uh, check it out for yourself uh, in the show notes for this program on our website, thearcadeshow.com. It's worth checking out. Uh, the area itself looks small, though I have read subsequent reports where um, there's the initial area they're going to get done, you know, with... Uh, Peach's Castle, with Bowser Castle, with a Yoshi ride. They're going to expand, actually, uh, or at least have plans to expand to another area and work in and incorporate a Donkey Kong Donkey Kong minecart ride as well. Hmm, that'd be cool. Well, certainly. And uh, the thing to bear in mind as you, you know, view the images of Super Nintendo World in Japan is... That's the template, because there are Nintendo World theme parks like this coming to uh, Los Angeles and also Orlando as well. Yeah, I mean, that'd be very... It's something to look forward to, and I mean, my brain goes 
in many different ways where the augmented reality could go, especially with a Mario Kart ride. Like, I think real life, quote unquote, Mario Kart, where you actually get to control, quote unquote, the cart and have a real actual Mario Kart race with your friends. That might be really cool. Sure would be. I believe uh, there's going to be technology aplenty through the area. I've already seen uh, in previous press events uh, for Super Nintendo World in Japan uh, that all users will get basically a Bluetooth wristband, and there's going to be question mark blocks located all throughout the park. And you'll be able to go and basically hit the coin block from underneath. It will correspond and uh, send information to your Bluetooth wristband and you will, on your account, on your wristband, be collecting coins from these question mark blocks throughout the park. Yeah. So it's going to be a big focus. Uh, technology is in this new theme park. Uh, February 4th, 2021 is when it opens. So something to look forward to if you are just absolutely needing to get away and COVID restrictions have been lifted to some degree by that point. Uh, something to look forward to, or at least... Plan ahead for uh, maybe uh, a some sort of you know revenge trip once uh, everything's free and open again to uh, to go to Japan and check out Universal Studios and see the Super Nintendo World. It it looks very impressive. Yeah. But moving along to more current matters, more timely matters. This week was the week that uh, Jeff Keighley and his Game Awards production uh, happened in a live stream event, live stream only, of course, because that's only what's allowed these days. But uh, still, Jeff Keighley and his uh, cohorts putting on pretty much the only uh, uh, Game Awards show that I believe that has happened this year uh, in any sort of formal presentation. Uh, many categories, I believe over or, or around 30 categories that they gave out awards for. We're yeah. not going to go through all of them. No, like generally, generally, like I think all of the categories can probably, could probably actually be kind of condensed down into a few different categories, like a few different more condensed categories since, especially since there's like a lot of um, overlap between, you know, games that were nominated for every category and which games won in which groups of categories and stuff. So... Basically, I, I feel that like the one that's sort of the best representative of all of the other categories, obviously, is Game of the Year. Um, and that one sort of generally sums up all of the other big games in all of the other categories, pretty much, with the exception of a couple of outliers here and there. But like generally, all the games that were sort of mentioned everywhere else were Animal Crossing New Horizons, Doom Eternal, Final Fantasy VII Remake, Ghost of Tsushima, Hades, and The Last of Us Part Two. And I'd want to say spoiler alert, but it's not really a spoiler alert. We're just kind of discussing, you know, who won an event that's passed now. The Last of Us Part Two pretty much cleared, cleaned up. It sure did. It took home the award for Game of the Year, Best Game Direction, Best Narrative, uh, Best Performance, Best Audio Design. Um, I think it won five or six different awards. Uh, oh, Innovation in, in Accessibility as well, Best Action Adventure Game. Um, it, Yeah, pretty much everything it was nominated for, it won. It won that category. So a good day all around for Naughty Dog and the uh, team that worked on Last of Us Part 2. And there, like I said, there's 30 categories. 
uh, that had awards handed out. We're not going to touch on all of them. In fact, just the, the one other category I did want to point out was the award for best VR slash AR game. Uh, the nominees were Dreams, Marvel's Iron Man VR, Star Wars Squadrons, The Walking Dead, Saints and Sinners, and the ultimate winner of this VR AR category, Half-Life Alex. Which should not be surprising that one, but also surprising that, at least to me anyway, that, oh yeah, Half-Life Alex actually was released this year. Yeah, it's kind of funny how, you know, for, what, 14 years now we've been kind of asking for a new Half-Life game, and then they finally give it to us, but it's in a form that almost no one wants. <laughs> <laughs> was it's- this like the ultimate troll uh, I feel there's an element of trolling to, to, to its release and whatnot. Uh, now, I mean, obviously it's a good enough game to be handed this award, but also too, my thought was, oh yeah, with all the other shit that came, that came down the pipe this year in, in this year of our Dark Lord, um, totally forgot and glossed over the fact there was a new Half-Life game set in the canonical Half-Life universe. Yeah. But yeah, you were, you were mentioning earlier, there are 30 awards and we're not talking about any of the other awards because honestly, at this point, it just kind of like, it's a lot of samey kind of stuff with a couple of minor differences. Like there's indies, there's a lot of esports related awards and stuff like that. Fine. But what it kind of has felt like the game awards has turned into is just basically like awards generally just kind of interrupting ads or like, you know, trailers for upcoming games. And it really seems like the game awards this year, more than any other year, it felt to me that, you know, there seemed to be a lot more hype built in to the trailers than there were the actual awards. Am I wrong? No, I got that sense as well. And I wonder if that's a byproduct of there not being any sort of E3 event this year and uh, uh, just there being the one event for a large amount of game reveals and game announcements uh, didn't really happen uh, in the gaming community. Yeah, I, I guess I hadn't really considered that, but that could also definitely be a huge contributing factor. So, yeah, it really felt like it was kind of like, check out this sweet trailer for this game. Okay, now, now here's an award. Now check out this another sweet trailer for a game. All right, okay, well, I guess we'll do another award because I guess this is a game show. Oh, and then this game is coming out at some point, maybe next year. Whoa, it's just like, okay. You might as well just have like a three-hour commercial and then just like release, you know, just a quick, like, here's all the winners at the end. Like, <laughs> that's what it almost felt like, right? Yeah, yeah the credits for the uh, production crew is really just all the award winners being announced as they just scroll up the screen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Uh, but no, I totally get it. And I understand from the business aspect of things, too, uh, that's how Jeff Keighley and his team make money on this event, by selling those spots to whatever dev team, publisher, whatever, that want their a video, their announcement included. Yep. Otherwise, well, they're, I, I they're still it. funding the thing, so it's, it's how they do it. But yeah, this year really seemed amped up. Although... I mean, maybe justifiable, given that what one of the early announcements during the Game Awards was. Yeah, I mean, right away, I mean, it, Smash Brothers Ultimate has sort of turned into being this uh, almost like an evergreen money-making machine for Nintendo, it seems. I mean, if, if the Switch wasn't an evergreen money-making machine, you know, DLC and, like, basically their Smash Brothers platform is, like, 
the best suited platform that they have right now, I would say for them to make continued money off of. Um, but you know, one of the, the things that they've been kind of doing is just revealing new unexpected characters showing up in smash brothers ultimate. And yeah, they, they got people hype with, you know, a pretty, I would say sort of unexpected, um, character joining the roster as a part of DLC. I'd say unexpected. This is not a name I had seen floated, uh, uh, rumors, no scuttlebutt around it. Not even one I would see mentioned when the question would be asked to uh, put forward to people on social media of who do you want included as the next DLC character for Smash Brothers Ultimate. I didn't really see this name mentioned, but it turns out uh, people are now hyped AF to play as Sephiroth in Smash Brothers Ultimate. Yeah, so... For those of you wanting Birdo to show up, for those of you who who want, um, you know, like any uh, number of other characters, another like another Fire Emblem character. Yeah, I, I mean, I feel like there's been like a couple of like petitions going around for various characters, but I never saw a petitioner mention of Sephiroth at all. But here we are. This is the new reality we live in, and uh, how are you feeling about it? I mean, I'm pretty unaffected by it. I mean, I'm not really a, a full disclosure. I'm not really a Smash Brothers player. I never really have been. Like, it's a fun novelty to me, but I'm not super into it. Like, it's it, it's kind of a novelty that wears off pretty quickly in my mind. So that's just that's just me. I'm not a fighting game person, but um, I I don't know if there are fighting game players like who are people who are part of the Smash community. Is, does this excite you? Please drop us a line, info at thearcadeshow.com, or, you know, drop us a line on social media, on uh, Twitter, where The Arcade Show, and Facebook, same thing, The Arcade Show. Just let us know. Yeah, it's uh, intrigued to get your uh, feedback. Uh, no exact release date for Sephiroth coming to Smash Brothers Ultimate, although uh, it's been given the uh, release window of the later part of December. So there's still about two weeks between now and the end of December. So anytime in the next two, yeah, say two and a half weeks, uh, is when Sephiroth will join the roster of Smash, Smash Brothers Ultimate, and maybe eventually get uh, an amiibo figure as well. Yeah. So, to really just break your brain as someone who uh, played Final Fantasy VII in ye olden times on the on the PlayStation uh, consoles, and uh, now here with a Nintendo amiibo figure. Yeah, uh, but yeah, moving along with the the stuff that was kind of you know, uh, revealed during the game, uh, awards, uh, arc two, which is not a thing that, you know, I, I thought would turn into like a big hype moment turned into a big hype moment. If anything else, because of how ridiculous it was <laughs> of what they've showed. So arc, uh, well, the arc series, as it's now turned into, if you're not familiar with, um, set in the, well, set, with you as a character in and amongst dinosaurs, um, there's elements of ancient technology and whatnot. Uh, but, uh, the first arc game, I don't think really readied anyone for the fact that arc two would contain Vin Diesel as a character. <laughs> I mean, 
eat your heart out, Cyberpunk 2077. You, <laughs> you might have, you might have Keanu, but we've got Vin Diesel. <laughs> a no, direct, I, a direct answer to Cyberpunk, obviously. Yeah, though I don't know if the exchange rate is, you know, there for one Keanu Reeves <laughs> equaling one Vin Diesel. I don't know if that's true, but, um, they're, they also released, you know, um, a trailer for Ark the Animated Series, which I think was the more unexpected thing. And even more unexpected is how insane the voice cast for Ark the Animated Series is. Because somehow Wildcard Studios for this Ark the Animated Series managed to enlist Gerard Butler, Malcolm McDowell. Well, that one's not surprising. No. He'll do anything for money. Uh, David, <laughs> <laughs> David Tennant, you know, one of the Doctor Who's himself, yes. Elliot Page, you know, uh, Carl Urban, Russell Crowe, and Vin Diesel, of course. So, like, all huge stars, like, all massively bankable people. Like, not a single one of those people should be someone that you're unaware of. And from the trailer, it sounds like Russell Crowe is the one who's doing the main, uh, you know, distant third-party narration. Yeah, because, you know, as he's aged, his voice is turned into, like, the perfect type of voice for that type of thing. It's true. But, but yeah, I mean, like, they're like the big stars. There's also, you know, secondary, you know, secondary level cast in there. And there's some pretty recognizable names as well, like, including like Alan Tudyk and like, uh, a few others as well. So, you know, I, I think we're going to get more details about this, but I think that was the big unexpected thing. Like, if people laughed and were like, what when they saw Vin Diesel, the announcement of like this animated series with this, crazy cast kind of clinched it uh i i did not know that arc as a franchise had this in it also i did not know arc was going to be a franchise with this in it no i didn't either <laughs> like i think my perception of the initial arc game was that it was okay fairly well received uh, did okay you know, commercially, but did not know there's this whole other world behind it that was going to come down the pipe and just every major celebrity voice actor would be involved in it. Yeah. But, um, shows how much I know. Yeah. I mean, I, I knew nothing about ARC. I mean, honestly, whenever I saw mention of ARC, it kind of blended into the background scenery with other games to me. Like it was just kind of like, Oh, it's another, another battle royale maybe, or maybe it's just another generic multiplayer third person shooter or something or first person shooter. I have no idea. There's too many games. It's hard to keep track of them all these days. Yes, exactly. But um, speaking of too many games and hard to keep track of, you know, you, well, Mike, the legend and I are, we've gone on record multiple times that we are a fan of this particular franchise and our ears are going to perk up anytime a new property comes out in the franchise because, you know, for old time's sake, if anything else. Um, but this one, it's a franchise that has had games before with varying degrees of success, usually not very good, but um, I always hold out hope for, you know, every new game generation that someone gets it right because there is potential there. And what we're talking about and what I've been kind of dancing around with this whole sentence is that we are, that we also learned during the game awards that there is a new evil dead game coming out simply called 
Evil Dead the Game. Yes, hopefully by simplifying the title of this game, they will simplify the experience and thus make it a better overall game as opposed to previous entries like Evil Dead Hail to the King, um, Evil Dead This is My Boomstick. Like, there's been a string of terrible Evil Dead games, and I think a bunch of them were on the PlayStation and PlayStation 2. Yeah, uh, well, one of them I remember was just straight up a Resident Evil ripoff complete with the tank controls of Resident Evil. Like... Well, that's as subtle as a brick to the face. Yeah, but, um, yeah, so I guess to, to answer the the first burning question, yes, Bruce Campbell is involved. Yes, Bruce Campbell will be Ash because, honestly, no one else can be Ash. And, I mean, it's not a remake like Evil Dead, the remake was. If you remember that movie that came out, how they kind of made it a little bit too... Too like gore porn of style of movie, you know, like more in the lines of like a hostile kind of horror movie as opposed to like more cheesy and kind of lighthearted like the Evil Dead franchise turned into. Yeah, it uh, it didn't have as many comedy elements as we've seen with previous entries in the Evil Dead franchise. Yeah. Exactly. Which is, I think, a big thing lacking when you're going to try to take this franchise and do something with it. Uh, which is why, like, they course corrected with Ash versus the Evil Dead, the television series that stars, I believe, was, you know, the network behind. So there still is juice in the franchise whenever they want to bring it back. Like, Bruce Campbell is an affable person. Like, he's fun to watch on screen. He's not the best actor. He'll tell you that he's not the best actor, but it's, it's fun to watch him as Ash because it's sort of like a role that he knows and he, no matter what he says is pretty much like canon and law for like how that character should be treated. So it's always fun to see, you know, whenever, whenever he's involved in any sort of capacity like this. And yeah, it sounds like it could be a good time finally, because this, it's going to be entirely online from what I understand it's going to feature both co-op and player versus player gameplay and players will join teams of four to quote unquote seal the breach between worlds while others will take control of the powerful Ken, uh, Kandarian demon to hunt Ash and his friends while possessing deadites, the environment and even the survivors themselves, including <coughs> or according to the developer Saber Interactive. So it sounds like uh, asymmetrical multiplayer. Yeah. Which is interesting, uh, and see how it would work in this uh, aspect, this <clears throat> this franchise of Evil Dead, and still have a good amount of uh, heroes, you know, in the woods shooting and killing a whole bunch of zombies in a, a blood splattered good time. Yeah, and also too from the trailer, I don't know if you you saw or picked up on this, but it looked like not only is it you know Ash with Bruce Campbell as Ash, but it looked like there's multiple characters. For, that's kind of spanned the Evil Dead franchise. So there was, uh, of course, Ash, portrayed by Bruce Campbell, but th- also there was, uh, I believe, Kelly from the Ash vs. Evil Dead TV series. Uh, there was one of the knights from, I believe, Army of Darkness. And there was a guy who looked like he was fresh out of the 70s or 80s. I don't know what character that would have been, but it's not just uh, you playing as Bruce Campbell. You'll have a team of like four or five with you as well. Yeah. So, you know, that, that's, that's good. 
I really hope that we see, you know, a lot of characters from Army of Darkness because that was my favorite and probably a lot of people's favorite, I would imagine. I mean, that is one of the best movies ever made. Yes, I think so. I mean, certainly one of the funniest. Yeah. I, well, I mean, yeah, and then I know a lot of people have a lot of different subjective and really want to take like some degree of rigor into what should go into quote unquote best. But given how many times I've seen it and given how much of it I can just quote, I'm going to say best, one of the best period. Like that should be the only thing that matters. Like, I don't care if you think it's like cinema, like if the cinematography is as good as like, you know, whatever thing is like some standard for cinematography or anything like that. Like, no, like the overall package, one of the best. I've got a lot of enjoyment out of that movie overall. So yeah. And that's really all that matters. Yeah. It should be. So those were games that were announced during the course of the game awards earlier this week. Uh, but one of the titles that normally would have been a part and would have been shown off or potentially even nominated for some of the various categories would have been a new halo game, which we know is in development, but, uh, here we are with the launch of a new Microsoft console, but there was no new Halo title to be the killer app for it. Yeah, which is a problem because, you know, every console needs a killer app to push units. And Halo would definitely, you know, be a unit mover for a new Xbox. Like, I mean, anytime a new Halo comes out, that's basically Microsoft's response to Call of Duty. So you're going to get that online crowd of people that just want to hang out and, you know, have matches with their friends, you know, that way. Like I know lots of people who loved Halo and just the only reason why they stopped is because they kind of got bored with, you know, the other maps available previously. So for Halo infinite to be released would probably be huge, even if it's just rehashes of old maps or something. But it, unfortunately we're not bringing you news of, you know, any quickened release date for Halo Infinite because no, Microsoft has basically pushed back the launch to be pretty late, actually. Uh, yes. So it, it was kind of widely believed until it was pushed back that uh, Halo Infinite would come out in the, well, to coincide with the launch of the new Xbox console. That, of course, did not happen. Uh, prior to that, it was uh, said that it would be delayed into 2021. Uh, and now Microsoft has given a, uh, a different window, an adapted window, release window for Halo Infinite. They're now saying that a launch is anticipated in autumn of 2021. The fall of t- months of 2021 uh, is when Halo Infinite is set for launch. At this current point, I will add that caveat right there. At this current point. It's a moving target. Yes, it sure is. So they made the announcement in a uh, blog post on the Halo Waypoint website. Uh, and there are parts of the blog post that kind of sound like and read as though it's uh, uh, people writing a justification for why the game is uh, being put off and, and delayed and kind of skirting around the fact that it's, you know, been delayed, I believe, for a second time already. Uh, apparently there was a demo for it that came out in the summertime that wasn't well received. So it sounds like the people at 343 Industries and uh, the developers have kind of had to go to the back to the drawing board on some aspects and really zazz up the parts that need zazzing. <laughs> yes. To put it one way, yes, absolutely. <laughs> 
to put it the best way is, uh, I believe, what you were going to say there. Yes, the best way. <laughs> yes. So Halo Infinite, um, now slated for a fall 2021 release. Uh, if it does make it to that window, I wonder if Microsoft tries to time it for uh, to launch and coincide with the one-year anniversary of the launch of the Xbox Series X and Series S. I mean, it seems like a little bit of a weird thing to do, but I don't see, you know, I, I also could see it as just being like, you know, a reason why they would do it. Assuming it, you know, is ready to go by that point, which uh, it sounds like there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure in no small part due to the pandemic and how, you know, people's working styles have had to change and stuff. So, yeah. I mean, collaboration uh, has certainly been forced to take new approaches uh, and these sorts of big projects like a, like a Halo Infinite, like uh, Last of Us Part 2, like Cyberpunk 2077, they are very collaboration-heavy projects. Yeah, absolutely. So, it, you know, you can have a team of people, and they can only do so much, but they still have to collaborate and work with other teams, other people, other departments. And when you've been accustomed to being in that office and just quickly going from, you know, desk-to-desk, cubicle-to-cubicle, and talking face-to-face... Uh, yeah, it kind of is. There's an adjustment, and still, even months later, there's you know things that will crop up that you didn't uh, realize until they crop up. Of oh, now this is different as well. So, uh, yep, just a fact that Halo Infinite is currently slated for a fall 2021 release. Yeah, but one last news item to get to here on this program, uh, as we are just a couple really less than two weeks away from Christmas, if you can believe that, which I can't. <laughs> no, I can't either. Uh, but if you are still needing to get a present, or at least get an idea of a present for someone, even though you may not be able to hand them to that person in, uh, well, in, in the flesh, in person, but uh, have something shipped to a friend, colleague, loved one, whatever the case might be, uh, Atari will try and sell you something as the uh, dead skin mask wearing husk that calls itself Atari is uh, trying to get in on the uh, classic nostalgia market. Uh, uh, the, I guess, miniature handheld classic nostalgia market. No, not with uh, some terrible attempt at the Atari or old Atari machine, but they're trying to, uh, well, pry you from your money, your hundred dollars with a miniature Pong arcade machine. Because that's just what everyone wants. A miniature Pong arcade machine. If you don't have enough crap taking up space and dust inside your uh, your dwelling, then here's another thing for you. <laughs> it is a, as I said, it's a miniature arcade Pong machine, and it's not just the, the, the vertical cabinet. No, no, it's the miniature tabletop style arcade Pong, uh, Pong arcade machine. It's called the uh, Mini Pong Junior, and it's a tabletop. It's got a 7.9-inch LCD screen uh, plus two of the dial controllers so you can play against a friend. Uh, or there's also 10 difficulty settings if you have no one to play with uh, and are simply playing against the computer. And it's rechargeable with AA batteries that you install. And it looks like just an old arcade or old Pong tabletop arcade machine. Minus the terrible 80s wood grain paneling. <laughs> Though, if it was actually put together with really fine woodworking, I think that would be awesome. 
I mean, that might uh, justify the $129 price point, or help to justify. Yeah. Which, also, this thing, it's currently available for pre-order with the... Uh, through Arcade One Up and is currently listed as anticipating shipping in late December or post Christmas shippings. So bear that in mind. But yeah. also it's $129 US. Yeah. For Pong. Who in the right mind is going to pay that much in this day and age for a dedicated Pong playing thing? Like a thing that it's only purpose, and the only thing you can do with it is playing Pong. And that right there is a one-trick pony. Yes. Although, this particular one-trick pony has ten difficulty settings as well, so... You know, just saying. If you need to really need your Pong fix against a computer, you can get this dedicated, handheld tabletop device. Yes, Exactly. So I'm just going to throw it out there and say that the uh, dead skin mask wearing husk that calls itself Atari still doesn't know its ass from a hole in the ground. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's probably a fair assessment. Though <laughs> I would be curious to see how well this thing will actually do. Because I know, like, like you and I had scoffed before when we heard that they were releasing a, a mini 2600. But, you know, someone who I used to work with, who is a little bit older than me, got super excited being like, oh, that'd be sweet. Like, yeah, like I used to, it's like, I used to play Atari all the time when I was a kid. Like, it's like, oh, okay. I mean, there are still people older than us, so maybe this might be a fun novelty for, you know, people who are maybe younger boomers or older Gen Xers. It might be a good present for your parents, maybe, if, you know, you want to do that. But, yeah. <laughs> Beyond that, I, I'm very curious how this is, how well this will actually do. Yeah, I'm curious about that as well. It's uh, it's being done and manufactured, I believe, through or at least sold through Arcade One Up. And uh, while some of those Arcade One Up cabinets that you can buy and uh, assemble yourself it might seem like one trick ponies, uh, you know, might seem ludicrous to just buy a, a scale replica arcade machine of just one game. At least they, on those machines, include a couple different titles, you know, anywhere from three to four, maybe even upwards of six different titles in one cabinet in one form factor, so you're getting some additional value that way. This is literally just one game, one title, with a very specific and dedicated form factor. Yes. Like, it's not even one that would be even worth hacking to do other stuff with it, because what are you going to do with the Pong controls for other games? I I couldn't imagine. Um, turn it into, hack it and turn it into some kind of DJ tool? I don't know. Or, like, maybe open up some new um, type of uh, speedrun category, maybe, for other games. Like, <laughs> Like, who can beat Super Mario Brothers the fastest using Pong controls? I don't know. And the, these are all ideas being spitballed to try and justify the $129 US price point, which, call me crazy, but I have a hard time seeing the justification. Yeah. You and me both, friend. You and me both. You see, I respect my dollars and value them and do not uh, enjoy frittering them away. Indeed. Some people out there perhaps have too many of those dollars and wish to spend them in their own way, their own frivolous way, in which case this Atari uh, replica machine is for them. Yes. 
But uh, that that is just a uh, you know one way that's trying to uh, re uh, I guess relive some some nostalgic uh, days. And uh, I mean that's kind of ties in nicely with our last segment here as we uh, turn our attention to the final part of this program, which is always the blast from the past, the uh, segment of the show where we take some time to fete and celebrate some. Pieces of entertainment from yesteryear that are celebrating milestone anniversaries. They could be movies, TV shows, games, albums, things that uh, we think are worth talking about because they're good, they're they're bad, they're ugly, they're otherwise. There's there's some some cachet about them that uh, we think bears talking about. And we have two items this week. Both are movies. Both are comedy movies. Both kind of surprisingly old. Yeah, I think we should probably start with the older of the two this week. Just to kind of, I want to say get it get it out of the way because I know neither one of us are going to have a lot to say about this movie, but I find it kind of amusing that it's twenty years old now. It is um, it is twenty years old, effective or as of December fifteenth, it becomes twenty years old. For it was released on December fifteenth of the year two thousand. Uh, this is maybe a movie you've heard uh, some sort of passing comedic reference to, like ten years ago, but certainly not in recent times. It is yeah. uh, it's a teen stoner comedy from the year two thousand, uh, starring Sean William Scott and Ashton Kutcher. It is a movie. Perhaps you saw, perhaps you had on DVD, perhaps you uh, are aware of. It's a movie called Dude, Where's My Car? Yeah, so I know at the time Ashton Kutcher was kind of at the, well, known for playing dumb characters. Like, this was really like his second big foray into pop culture after that 70s show. When he was, you know, Michael Kelso, who was kind of a bit of a bonehead in the show. Not really known for being super smart. And he kind of, it looked like he was at risk of basically typecasting himself by just doing this right away. But I think people might have got the general impression that Ashton Kutcher, not a super smart dude because of this. We later found out he's actually really smart. He just, you know, like playing silly characters and doing, you know, fun things, which is fair enough. I mean, no problem with that, but... Yeah, he didn't do himself any sort of favors. Or maybe he did himself a great favor by really separating his on-screen persona from his off-screen persona. Entirely possible, because in this current day and age, Ashton Kutcher is, uh, he's a bit of an actor, although he's also a very successful venture capitalist um, uh, involved in the tech industry. I believe he sat in one of the chairs on Shark Tank a couple times. Um, yeah. He's got a nine-figure net worth, so... And that's not all from his acting. No. Like, he's... Yeah, he's very involved in the tech space. And, yeah, I've, I've heard interviews with him, with him where he talks about various, you know, things that excite him about the tech space. And he's really into AI and really into things like that. So it's, like, kind of surprising to hear Kelso and the guy from Dude, Where's My Car? To me, still, to this day, just kind of talking about you know, smart concepts and stuff like machine learning and whatnot. It's like, oh, okay, you're, you're actually a smart dude. Cool. Dude Where's My Car definitely helped to cement that, you know, not that fact in a lot of people's heads for a while. Um, yeah. I feel like I never saw this movie, I'm going to be honest. Um, but the general impression I got was that it was one of those movies where it was one joke, 
that they used for the whole thing, like two stupid idiots who had like a, like a night of heavy drinking or something forgot where they parked their car, have to try to figure out where they parked their car the next day. And, you know, through retracing the steps lies the comedy. That's the movie. Now, as someone who did see this movie and did see this movie in theater, um, way back when, uh, I can say that's kind of sort of true. It's, I mean, hilarity and, and hijinks ensue. Yes, the, it's a very simple, silly premise. And there's one scene where, um, that, that really becomes true. Uh, it's a stoner comedy. It is what it is. Um, with two doofuses as your, but still charming and likable doofuses as your main characters. Uh, they are retracing the steps to try and find where exactly they have located their car. And then just ridiculous escalating hijinks ensue in the yeah. course of trying to find their car. Um, it, it did not win any awards. It's not going to win any awards. That's, that's not really its purpose. It was, yeah. a, you know, it's a silly lighthearted movie that was made for not a lot of money and actually made a respectable amount of money. Yeah. Like the budget was $13 million. Uh, the box office made $73 million. So they definitely got their money back. And then some, like, it was a profitable movie. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, in many ways, it was sort of like a movie, well, this, this exact idea of a movie has been done a million times and it will be done a million times more, but like, it's almost like the hangover, I think is a good instance of like what this movie like, I don't know if The Hangover is directly inspired by Dude, Where's My Car? But it seems like it's the same kind of execution, but done maybe a little bit better. I, I can see that. I can see that argument. Um, basically, the hijinks of trying to, you know, recount what happened, uh, you know, the previous evening with characters who don't quite remember and have to have it revealed to them as they go through yeah. the adventure. Yeah, exactly. No, I can see that. It's a simple premise. This, you know, in 2000, December 15th, 2000, Dude, Where's My Car was the form factor for that premise. And, you know, 10 years later, it was The Hangover. And give it another 10 years, we'll see it done again, just uh, differently. Although, I don't know if, uh, as I think of it and speaking about this movie, I don't know if we'll necessarily see the uh, the concept of a quote-unquote stoner comedy uh, maybe be as effective going forward as more and more jurisdictions uh, legalize or at the very least decriminalize marijuana and cannabis product. Yeah. Though, I mean, the, the tropes are still going to exist with like, you know, stoners, like the munchies are always going to be a thing. You know, the, the kind of like faux philosophical thoughts of like, Oh, I get high and think really deep thoughts, but they just sound, they sound deep to you when you're high, but they're not actually deep. They just, they're kind of dumb. Like some of those, like they're, they're tropes for a reason and they're not going to actually go away as tropes, but you know, they're, unless you're saying they're just going to kind of become played out and maybe people are going to say, eh, I, I think that, I think that's, uh, that's it. They are going to get played out as people get more and more, um, just educated on marijuana and cannabis and perhaps uh, there's greater acceptance of these products in mainstream society that they won't be points of comedy anymore. Yeah. Unless, you know, or the opposite might be true because still stoner comedy has been a thing for forever. I mean, you can go back to Cheech and Chong in the seventies and like this, here's the thing. I think some things are actually timeless. Like 
talk of the munchies is a timeless topic, you know, things like that in terms of, you know, being you know, stoner tropes and maybe retelling of those jokes through generations is a thing that's just going to be a thing, right? Like entirely possible. We'll have to, uh, we'll have to see just, uh, where comedy goes forward with, uh, uh, with stoner comedy, if that's a thing going forward as well. And yeah. actually speaking of stoner comedy, uh, just one other thing to point out about dude, where's my car? The director of this movie, Danny, uh, Lehner or Mr. Lehner, uh, went on to direct Harold and Kumar go to white castle. Yeah. Another stoner comedy classic. Yeah. So, so yeah, that is a movie I have seen and did enjoy. So there you go. Dude, where's my car from the year 2000? Uh, but another movie that we want to talk about now, it's a comedy movie that is, as I said, surprisingly old is celebrating its 15th anniversary as it was released on December 16th of the year 2005. Uh, this is a movie that is slightly convoluted in its in its path to being a uh, production for the silver screen, it's the movie that is an adaptation of a Broadway musical, which itself was an adaptation of a previous movie. Yes. So, so all that is the lead up to say that we are now going to talk about the producers from 2005. Yes. Not from 1967, but from 2005. So, I mean, I can definitely recommend both producers movies as being separate entities that are worth watching. The original, I think is like obviously where it all came from and like, you know, where a lot of like the original comedies should still kind of be the source of truth. But the 2005 movie is not without its charm because it's an adaptation of the musical. And if, you know, if it depends on how you feel about musicals, I know some people just hate musicals. So if you're one of those people, watch the original 1967 movie because the musical aspect of it is downplayed. I mean, ultimately there is a musical number in both. It's kind of unavoidable because it's, it is about producers of a musical basically looking to basically create a big flop just so they can kind of embezzle a bunch of money and have a way to, uh, yeah, you know, just a get-rich-quick scheme is basically what the movie is. Um, but, you know, there's really one musical number, and it's really in poor taste for the 1967 version. And, you know, in my opinion, it's very hilarious. Um, but yeah, there, there's a whole thing that goes into the original, which is crazy. Like, just, I guess, because now we're on the topic of this movie, um, I think it's worth mentioning how truly brave Mel Brooks is as a, as like, you know, a father of modern comedy because he made the original movie in 1967, which has like a whole musical number that lampoons and makes Adolf Hitler looks ridiculous. Um, which at the time world war two was still pretty fresh in people's minds. That would basically be like someone coming out with like a 9-11 musical where like people are making fun of Osama bin Laden and stuff now. Like, I think kind like in 1967, World War II wasn't really like a thing that you look back on in history books. It was legitimately a thing that people still remembered as being just like, well, I remember that 
from like just 20 years ago, man. Like I was in high school when that happened. What are you talking about? Like it's still very raw in people's memories too. Yeah. So it's crazy that he did that back then, but in hindsight, I think it still holds up pretty well, but yeah. Anyways, like I guess a lot of other people thought so too. And you know, as a result, he was able to make, you know, a very successful Broadway musical based on it. And then that very successful Broadway musical with all of its different musical numbers, they wanted to bring it to the big screen as a separate entity because it is a separate entity. It's telling the same story, but in a slightly different way, mostly through song as opposed to mostly through acting. Um, but yeah, worth watching. Definitely worth watching. Great cast. I mean, instead of, uh, uh, Zero Mostel and, uh, Gene Wilder and Gene Wilder, who were, you know, the original uh, Max Bialystok and Leo Bloom. We have Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick, which returning to the roles they, they played in hugely successful runs in the Broadway adaptation. Yeah. Um, and yeah, this, I guess, you know, because obviously there's more musical comedy people in this movie as well. Like you end up seeing people who can actually sing, sort of ending up in this iteration of the movie, like unsurprisingly you end up seeing like guys like John Lovitz and Will Ferrell and um, even John Barrowman shows up as well. Like he's maybe not as known here in North America as a name, but you know, he was, he was a uh, captain Jack Harkness in uh, Dr. Who and uh, Torchwood and stuff. So, also a, a very prominent figure in British like panel show culture and stuff as well. So see people like that. Like I, I think what's cool about this too is like we get to see like the modern though, or at the time, the more modern comedy equivalents of who the comedy people were in the 1967 m- movie. It's just sort of like a, yeah. Cause you know, the, the people back then were who they were in the comedy world, but you know, Will Ferrell wasn't around back then, whereas in 2005, Will Ferrell was. And, you know, who wouldn't want to have Will Ferrell in 2005 in their comedy movie? Exactly. In this one, uh, Will Ferrell played the role of Franz Liebkind, which in the original one was done by Kenneth Mars. Exactly. And both played, you know, expertly well by by their actors just in the different generations. Um, but I think I find with uh, this 2005 adaptation is it to watch it, I mean, not that it's unenjoyable, but it feels very much like you're watching a musical unfold, almost like it's, uh, even though there are larger set pieces or maybe they're shooting things in a city or whatnot, like they could have almost just gotten away with sticking a camera in the, in the seats of a theater as this unfolded on the stage. Yeah, very much like, you know, the, the popular, um, well, like, like Hamilton, the way that they presented Hamilton to people, on Disney Plus and stuff. Yes. It's literally, like, it's literally a recording of the actual musical being performed. That almost could have just been what happened with this movie. But yeah, this is, this is just like a cinematic adaptation of that, which is a little bit weird. I agree. A little bit weird, a little bit jarring, but not that it's, uh, unenjoyable or, or that interferes with, uh, your enjoyment of it as a viewer. You're still seeing, uh, and listening to some new songs that I believe 
Mel Brooks probably had a hand in writing or at least overseen and, and gave his blessing to, you know, expertly performed by Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick, who played it so well to huge acclaim on Broadway. I think they both won Tony's and the producers was just a huge money making smash on Broadway for a number of years. Like it, that's my sense, at least uh, of the past 20 years of Broadway is that there's every couple of years, there's like a new hit, you know, big hit sensation, but all the subsequent ones are, you know, even bigger than the previous one. Like producers in the early two thousands was the big Broadway sensation. Then there was Spamalot. Then there was book of Mormon. Uh, then there was Hamilton and what the next right now, there's nothing at the moment because everything is yeah. shut down, but what the next one is remains to be seen. So, um, so yeah, so this, uh, actually then kind of started a whole, you know, second, uh, second wave, second generation for Mel Brooks films on Broadway because I, it's because of the success of producers that young Frankenstein got adapt, uh, adapted to the stage. Uh, I believe blazing saddles was even adapted to the stage for a period of time. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's like a, a nice final act in his career. Really? The, yeah. That he never really had, uh, before too. And, um, it's, yeah, I, it's I, think it's, I think it's like a very interesting thing about Mel Brooks. Like he's a very musical person, like to the point where he, as far as I understand, he actually was a drummer in his younger days. Like, like a lot of music, like of those, of that generation of comedians also had, you know, some element of musical training to them because, you know, um, a lot of drummers actually, because, you know, as Mel Brooks has said in interviews and stuff, comedy is all timing drumming's timing drummers are, you know are usually more likely to be funny and blah 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 i don't know if that's actually true but like it definitely worked out for him um that way but it's there's always musical aspects in everything mel brooks does so it's kind of surprising that there was never a full-out musical that he did as a movie no right and uh no i i I'm surprised by that too and thinking back on it, but, uh, you know, kind of reminds me of the, uh, crazy story I've heard Mel Brooks, uh, share in interviews before too, where when he was a soldier in World War II, uh, I guess his, you know, North American platoon was on one side of the battlefield and the, uh, uh, the Nazi soldiers were on the other side of the battlefield. There just happened to be a break in the action for whatever reason at the time. And Mel Brooks, I think just kind of started singing Hello Dolly. Or I think it was Tootsie. Or Tootsie, yes, it was Tootsie. And uh, uh started singing and basically went through the whole song and got a round of applause from the Nazi soldiers. Yeah, which is insane. Because it's just sort of like this weird, like, humanizing thing of, like, no one actually wants to be at war. And, you know, they're all just kind of just doing it because they have to, because that's just where they were born and grew up. But I think he he very early on saw the ridiculousness of that and was kind of, like, right from the get-go like kind of pushing that limit of like, well, why can't I say that? Why can't I do this? You know, even in like a battlefield situation, because let's not forget, Mel Brooks has seen active duty as a soldier. Like that's something I think a lot of people maybe don't realize. Uh, you wouldn't think to look at him like to look at him now, you know, certainly, uh, and, or in his movie making days, he does not look like a soldier. No, but he was in like a battlefield platoon in world war two, like part of a battalion. Like that's, that's crazy. Yeah, he was, I mean, Carl Reiner too. They both saw active duty in, 
in World War II. Yeah. And so, uh, I mean, glad that they both survived. Absolutely. And uh, lived to give us some great pieces of comedy, in some cases, uh, skewering and uh, uh, just taking the piss out of Hitler and the Nazis in the form of the producers. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was then adapted to Broadway, which was then adapted to a film version of that Broadway adaptation in 2005, starring Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick. That is celebrating its 15th anniversary. And before that, we spoke of Dude, Where's My Car? The stoner comedy that uh, starred Ashton Kutcher and Sean William Scott that turns 20 years old. I I don't know how well that one would hold up after 20 years. <laughs> Well, maybe you'll, maybe I'll find out. I've never seen it. You know, I've seen my fair share of stoner comedies. I'll see how it holds up in the pantheon of stoner comedies. If it's, you know, up there with, you know, Harold and Kumar go to White Castle or Half Baked or, um, Up in Smoke or whatever. Like, we'll see. Uh, certainly. And, uh, uh, I, I look forward to your reporting back on that. Yes, that is if I get around to it. There's a million things to watch, as we've established earlier in this program as well. Yeah, there's too much content out there these days. It's overwhelming. And, you know, if you, you know, don't want to watch something, you want to play a game, well, what do you play? There's too much good content. Yeah. But uh, hopefully you will try and figure it out as we will try and figure it out. Uh, uh, but that wraps us up for this week's edition of the program and really wraps us up for uh, the business as usual shows for the year of 2020. As uh, the next time we come to you, we'll be with our Christmas music special, which uh, we look forward to doing every year. And uh, uh, this year, it's, it's just nice to have a little bit of just set tradition still being able to come to fruition. Yeah, because, you know, it's been a weird year, to put it very lightly and or make the understatement of the year. Um, so, you know, if we can bring any sort of normalcy back, we will, because, you know, we need to have those. It's nice to have, like, the tent poles in the year of, like, no, this is actually still a thing here, and this is what happens here, and this happens here. So let's just try to try to keep it a little bit normal, at least, even if... It's going to be a very abnormal Christmas season for most people anyways. Uh, certainly, and always with these sorts of music shows, we try to bring you some uh, some music, uh, thematically appropriate music that you uh, haven't heard anywhere else, or if you have, it's been a damn long time. But I think in looking over the selections for this year, yeah, no, you really haven't heard this stuff anywhere before. <laughs> I, feel, is, I feel confident in saying that. Which is excellent. It's something to look forward to for sure. Certainly. So that'll be the next time we come to you. But until then, we want to hear your thoughts on anything we, uh, we discussed on this week's program. Are you equally as overwhelmed by the amount of good content out there these days? Uh, be it games, be it streaming service, be it, uh, just shows to watch or whatnot. Uh, let us know. You can email us info at the arcade show.com or hit us up through social media. We're on Twitter at the arcade show and on Facebook, facebook.com slash the arcade show. And if you haven't done so already, give the gift to yourself and subscribe to this program on both iTunes and Google Podcasts. Direct links to our pages on both of those platforms can be found on our homepage of thearcadeshow.com. So, again, wrapping up the business as as usual programs for 2020. Uh, when we join you again, it's our Christmas music special. So until then, good night, everybody. Good night. Thank <laughs> you.